0: Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with a Camp David meeting hosted by President Biden that brought together the leaders of Japan and South Korea in an effort to overcome bitter memories South Koreans have of the brutal Japanese occupation from 1910 to 1945 in the hope of creating a united front against growing ties between North Korea, China and Russia. Joining us to assess the summit and concerns that Russia is supplying North Korea with missile technology in exchange for munitions it needs for its war in Ukraine is Sung Yoon Lee, a fellow at the Woodrow Wilson Center in Washington, D.C. He has testified as an expert witness in the U.S. House of Representatives Foreign Affairs Committee's hearings on North Korean policy, and his latest book is The Sister, the extraordinary story of Kim Yo-jong, the most powerful woman in North Korea. Then we'll examine reports that U.S. intelligence has assessed that Ukraine's counteroffensive in western Zaporizhia will not reach Melitopol and cut off the Russian land bridge to Crimea, as well as investigate casualty numbers that have Ukraine losing 70,000 killed and 100 to 120,000 wounded, with Russia's military casualties approaching 300,000, including 120,000 deaths and 170 to 180,000 injured. Joining us is Anders Asland, a senior fellow at the Stockholm Free World Forum, a professor at the Center for Eurasian, Russian and East European Studies at Georgetown University and a member of the Russian Academy of Natural Sciences who worked as a Swedish diplomat in Moscow and served as an economic advisor to the governments of Russia and Ukraine. His books include Ukraine, What Went Wrong and How to Fix It and Russia's Crony Capitalism, The Path from Market Economy to Kleptocracy. Then finally, we'll explore the possibility the planet is entering the opposite of the ice age, the Pyrocene Age of Fire. Joining us is Stephen Pine, a professor emeritus at Arizona State University and the author of many books on the history and management of fire, including Fire, A Brief History, Between Two Fires, A Fire History of Contemporary America, and most recently, The Pyrocene, How We Created an Age of Fire and What Happens Next. And before we begin, I'd like to thank our sustaining listeners whose tax-deductible monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org donate, or at our foundation, publictruthmedia.org, enable us to provide a daily briefing on the major stories in the news, free from commercials, corporate underwriting, paywalls, and constant fundraising. As Trump and his MAGA followers weaponize lies in their war against truth itself, we're in a fight between crazy America and normal America. In order to overcome deliberate distraction and distortion, Background Briefing seeks out facts and information to awaken the silent majority in the hope of restoring a reality-based community before fascism trumps democracy and facts become completely irrelevant. And joining us now is Sung Yoon Lee, who is a fellow at the Woodrow Wilson Center in Washington, D.C. He has testified as an expert witness in the U.S. House of Representatives Foreign Affairs Committee's hearings on North Korea policy. And his latest book is The Sister, The Extraordinary Story of Kim Yo jong the most powerful woman in North Korea. Welcome to Background Briefing, Sung Yoon Lee.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Well, thanks for joining us. And the summit at Camp David on Thursday and Friday, according to uh, the National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, they're not planning on creating a NATO of the Pacific having Japan and South Korea and the United States closely coordinate military and diplomatic and strategic uh, matters. So if they're not creating a NATO of the Pacific, what are they creating?
1: They are laying the foundation, small steps, towards chipping away at a giant, a colossal taboo in South Korea, which is, in the case of a war in the Korean Peninsula, Will Japanese troops participate in any operations, including combat? Will there be Japanese boots on the Korean Peninsula? This is a taboo because the overwhelming majority of South Korean citizens are strongly opposed to such a scenario. And the reason is that the entire Korean Peninsula suffered 35 years of brutal Japanese colonial rule. But when you think of it, we have this return of the Cold War dynamics of two different camps opposed to each other, China, Russia, North Korea on one side, and the US, South Korea, and Japan on the other. So, you know, the old adage, whether you're you're either with us or against us, sounds a bit hollow, you know, shallow in councils of power and erudition, but in times of war, It's clear. It's palpable. It's good to have Japan on our side.
0: So it seems that the new South Korean president, President Yoon, is quite a departure from his predecessor, President Moon, who tried to create some kind of rapprochement with North Korea that went absolutely nowhere. And he played up... The historical memory of South Korea's brutal treatment by the Japanese in the colonial period that you just mentioned from 1910 to 1945. Uh, So how how can this new president, uh, Yoon, turn things around given the bitterness of the historical memory in South Korea?
1: Well President Yoon, who was inaugurated a, a little over a year ago, has been taking hits, political hits, for his outreach to Japan, his effort to mend fences with Japan, visiting Japan uh, for a summit meeting earlier in the year, which was the first time in 11 years. And the residual antipathy on the part of South Koreans toward Japan is hard to explain. That is, it's complicated. In many ways, Japan's occupation of Korea was arguably uniquely cruel. Japan banned the Uh, teaching of Korean history, speaking of the Korean language. Japan forced Korean students to all speak Japanese, Koreans to adopt Japanese-sounding surnames. Um, Then there's the issue of wartime uh, enslaved labor, sexual enslavement, and so on. So it was quite brutal and intense. And I think the view around the world is Japan has been far less forthcoming on its war crimes against Koreans and Chinese than, say, uh, Nazi Germany or Germany in the post-war era has been, uh, that is, has been quite apologetic, but Japan uh, has not. So it is a very complicated affair. But from the U.S. point of view, which is largely, you know, future-oriented, practical, this rift, you know, this spat between two allies in the region japan and south korea is enormously frustrating so the biden administration i'm sure is very pleased with the outcome of the camp david um meeting and um you know it it is a historical historic event to have the leaders from the united states together with the leaders from japan and south korea uh, on the same page taking a stand together against of course china north korea And Russia.
0: So is there anything that Prime Minister Kishida of Japan is offering to heal those wounds with South Korea?
1: Well Japan um, has issues in terms of facing history and the fact that Japanese uh, Prime Minister Kishida has lifted trade sanctions against South Korea which were implemented uh, in 2019 uh, is a step in the right direction. None of this is altruism, of course. Uh, it's quid pro quo. It's in the name of national interest. And with the uh, the new world we're living in since Putin's, Russia's invasion of Ukraine last February, last year, um, you know, I think there's, there's a sense of urgency on the part of all concerned that uh, we have to unite against the growing aggressive policies uh, Pursued by North Korea, China and Russia. So Japan, South Korea and the US are being very practical in sending the message That we are united that you cannot separate us We stand as one and we will take a firm stance against China's aggression in the South China Sea and North Korea's continuing nuclear and missile threat
0: Well, Russia had exercised some restraint in transferring technology, particularly nuclear and missile technology, to North Korea, although apparently the North Koreans were able to hire renegade, if you will, Russian scientists which helped in their nuclear program and in their missile program. But since the war in Ukraine, where Russia's gotten bogged down and desperate to get particularly ammunition from North Korea Reasonable to assume, isn't it, uh, that there's a quid pro quo, that the North Koreans are providing 155 millimeter howitzer shells, etc., and black powder to the Russians. And in exchange, are the Russians uh, exchanging missile technology so that North Korean missiles could reach the United States? There was a recent report at CSIS that indicated that
1: that's a reasonable assumption entirely reasonable assumption in fact the u.s government on various occasions the biden administration has confirmed this uh, military partnership that is north korea providing ammunition and arms to russia and russia providing north korea with missile technology and so on so this is an old alliance Um, Loosely speaking, of course, in the old days, North Korea was an ally of the Soviet Union. North Korea remains an ally of China um, to both nations, to China and North Korea. The other side is its sole treaty ally. So, you know, this dynamic again of China, North Korea, Russia on one side and team USA with Japan and South Korea on its flanks. uh, This is in contention. It's real. And things are going to get worse because what North Korea does very well, as does China and Russia, is to use as a pretext any actions taken by the other team. So the Camp David Agreement, uh, its principles laid out, uh, which actually states China, uh, China is increasing uh, illegal and dangerous and aggressive behavior in the South China Sea. Uh, Those nations, China and North Korea and Russia, will use Uh, this development as a pretext to probably do things that they would have done anyway, that is for North Korea to um, fire another ICBM or do something worse, and for China to be more aggressive toward Taiwan in the South China Sea and in the Taiwan Strait, and for Russia to um, escalate its war in Ukraine. So we're on a course for perhaps a collision, Uh, perhaps things will considerably worse before there is uh, calm. But in my humble estimation, the summit at Camp David was um, a necessary and a constructive posturing by Team USA to have Japan and South Korea, which are, by the way, formidable military powers, um, often ranked on par with the military of the United Kingdom or France and so on. Uh, And of course, the U.S. is the world's strongest military power. So to have number one and number five, six or seven, whatever it may be, depending on the metrics, to have those three nations take a firm stance against China and Russia and North Korea is necessary, and it's a positive development.
0: But what is unstable and somewhat scary about this situation with North Korea is is that there is obviously some stable stability in the nuclear deterrence between China and the United States. China has enough strategic nuclear weapons to destroy the United States, and the U.S. has considerably more to destroy China. And the same applies with Russia and the United States. Even though there's a war going on in Ukraine, there's still nuclear deterrence and some stability. But when you have a wild card like North Korea and particularly if Russia is helping North Korea develop missiles that will reach the United States, then don't the Chinese and the Russians have a wild card with North Korea?
1: With the next North Korean provocation, which could come any day now, Russia and China will not only not condemn the aggressive behavior like like an ICBM launch, they will they will probably applaud in the background because the more problems North Korea creates for the United States, uh, the stronger their stance becomes, that is for China and Russia. North Korea has fired well over 100 ballistic missiles in the past 18 months or so since early uh, 2022, which are in flagrant violation of multiple UN Security Council resolutions that China and Russia had previously um, signed off on. But, you know, it's a different world. Not only uh, does China, not only do China and and Russia not support another resolution, they don't even condemn North Korea for these uh, aggressive actions. So, yes, uh, Russia and China really don't mind North Korea Uh, resorting to bigger provocations and causing problems for those three democracies in the region, South Korea, Japan and the US.
0: But meanwhile, China is the largest trading partner of both Japan and South Korea and and also is America's third largest uh, trading partner. So, and of course the Japanese and South Koreans, particularly the the automobile manufacturers, etc., they need the electronics for electric vehicle batteries and they need the electronics and electric vehicle batteries, et cetera, which are basically, you know, supplied by China and other Chinese subsidiaries. So the economies are pretty intertwined, aren't they?
1: That's right. And that is a very positive ameliorating effect. That is, all of these uh, nations, with the exception of North Korea, have a very robust trade relations with each other. And these economic interests um, are vital to maintaining peace and stability in the region. Um, so I'm not arguing that we are undergoing another Cold War that would be overly dramatic. But uh, you know, the line has been drawn between the two sides. And going back to my slightly um, frivolous analogy, we versus they mentality. Even in war, yes, it's clear who's on our side and who's our enemy. But even in war, there are nuances, there are negotiations, there are complex trilateral relations. So the summit meeting sent a firm message, China will bristle, North Korea will not like it, neither will Russia. But that doesn't mean we are headed toward war or military serious military confrontation right away in a way uh, it's a lot of messaging posturing signaling that the three countries the u.s japan and south korea are um, firm they stand firm together at the same time um, of course china will test it north korea will test that Uh, quasi-alliance. If I may just add, this is not a a formal military pact. It's not a formal trilateral NATO-style military um, treaty, uh, not at all. But the fact that the messaging is that the three nations will meet regularly, hold military drills regularly, does send a message to its audience.
0: So then what is the uh, attitude of the South Korean people? I mean, there must be Afraid of the North, as they have been, and, and the North recently uh, Kim jong un made threats that you know that this is the most dangerous period ever, or something to that effect I mean what you've had this uh, for seventy years, they've been promising and threatening war. I guess that that's <clears throat> what holds a dictatorship together, although you can't imagine I can imagine the people in North Korea have heard that refrain forever. I don't understand how they of course it's a totalitarian uh, system, so They don't have much choice, but still, have things changed, not just the increased bellicosity of the North, but what Russia's involvement in a brutal war in Ukraine uh, and China's saber-rattling over Taiwan, is that changing the opinions of the South Korean people? Are they more prone to accept, you know, swallow the distaste for Japan in order to form this trilateral alliance. As you say, it's not an alliance. It's what they call a duty to consult. But still, give me a sense just in the last few minutes here about the attitudes inside uh, South Korea itself.
1: Well, those people who um, are pro-US and skeptical of North Korea are quite pleased with the outcome, whereas the opposition political party um, has been very critical of the Camp David uh, principles. Some are saying even that this means that in any security threat to Japan, South Korea will be um, brought into conflict. Um, You know, why do we need Japan? We have the alliance with the U.S. and so forth, some politicians are saying. So, um, yeah, you have a a mixed uh, review, opinion, different opinions from different political circles. But what I uh, feel strongly about is that North Korea is not very happy right now because it's long been North Korea's policy to try to isolate South Korea away from the U.S. and also away from Japan. During the Korean War, Japan served an essential role in um, the the Allies, UN command's prosecution of the war against North Korea and China. Japan, by virtue of its location, uh, its industrial power, military power is essential to any such contingency in the region in the future.
0: Well, I thank you very much uh, for joining us here today, Sung-Yoon Lee. I appreciate it. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Sung-Yoon Lee, who's a fellow at the Woodrow Wilson Center in Washington, D.C., and has testified as an expert witness in the House, in the U.S. House of Representatives Foreign Affairs Committee's hearings on North Korea policy. And his latest book is The Sister, The Extraordinary Story of Kim Yo-Jung, the Most Powerful Woman in North Korea. We're going to take a peace station break and back examining reports that U.S. intelligence has assessed that Ukraine's counteroffensive in West Zaporizhia will not reach Lidopol and cut off the Russian land bridge to Crimea, as well as investigate the appalling casualty numbers on both sides.
2: What will we tell them,
0: Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Anders Aslan, who's a senior fellow at the Stockholm Free World Forum and a professor at the Center for Eurasian, Russian, and East European Studies at Georgetown University and a member of the Russian Academy of Natural Sciences, who worked as a Swedish diplomat in Moscow and served as an economic advisor to the governments of Russia and Ukraine. His books include Ukraine, What Went Wrong and How to Fix It, and Russia's Crony Capitalism, The Path from Market Economy to Kleptocracy. Welcome to Background Briefing, Anders Aslan.
2: Thank you very much, Ian.
0: Well, thanks for joining us. And there's a report that came out in the Washington Post that U.S. intelligence has assessed that Ukraine's counteroffensive in western Zaporizhia will not reach Melitopol and cut off the Russian land bridge to Crimea as well as, of course, we've learned of these appalling casualty numbers that has Ukraine losing 70,000 killed and 100,000 to 120,000 wounded, with Russia's military casualties approaching 300,000, including 120,000 deaths and hundred seventy to 180,000 injured. So what is happening here? What is this leak from U.S. intelligence? Why would they want to leak information that would weaken the resolve of the united states to support ukraine
2: yeah you are posing the big question unfortunately i don't have a good answer but this is clearly an attempt to undermine the us support for ukraine and that comes mainly from one third of the republicans in in congress who want to stop Uh, this aid, but the whole article is uh, very strange. Uh, It states that uh, Ukraine intended to take Melitopol until the end of August. Nobody has uh, said that, Uh, and uh, then complains that the Ukrainians did not concentrate its troops on one spot to attack. Why should they do that? What the Ukrainians are saying, I'm reading a lot of uh, Ukrainian uh, comments. That is, uh, uh, we have a wonderful commander-in-chief, uh, uh, General salushny He is perfectly opportunistic. He sees where is the enemy weak, and then he attacks there. He tests, he tests, he tests, and he's very careful not to lose uh, too many Ukrainian uh, soldiers' uh, uh, lives and we, because Ukraine, unlike Russia, is a democracy, human lives matter in Ukraine. For Putin, human lives don't uh, uh, matter. And uh, what the Ukrainians are doing, according to, to their own uh, statements, is that they are taking out as much as possible of the Russian troops. And what we are seeing is that the Russians are not bringing in new troops. But we are circulating the troops they already have in Ukraine, which is about 350,000. And uh, the Ukrainians are killing more and more of them. And they're also taking out uh, a lot of uh, material and uh, ammunition and uh, diesel. So what the Ukrainians say is that the third line of defense that the Russians claim to have doesn't exist because the Russians have sent their reserves uh, to to the uh, front. And the Ukrainians are patiently killing off more and more of the Russians. And then they uh, hope and think that eventually they will get a a breakthrough. And they are not saying when. They are not thinking when. They are waiting for um, essentially the uh, three top uh, generals, Saluzny, uh, Sirsky, and uh, Nayev, Uh, to say, now we uh, attack, and then they will attack
0: So is this then in the category of the broader problem, which I've always found extraordinary and Mm -hmm. haven't been able to get a lot of reporting on, but it just seems obvious from the objective evidence that from the very beginning of this war the U.S. has set its own red lines and then said, oh, you can't have this missile, you can't have... You can't have tanks. You can't have planes. And then months later, they agree. And then, of course, in the in the intervening months of the, where they're dithering, the Russians are able to build up their defenses. And this has been the pattern all along, which leaves you with the conclusion that there are elements in Washington uh, and in the White House that don't want Ukraine to win. Is that your assessment?
2: Yes, very much so. Uh, I was uh, working very intensely with the Soviet Union in '91, and then the person who supported the Soviet Union the most was uh, George H. W. Bush, uh, who thought went to Kiev on the first of August '91 and made uh, what uh, columnist William Safire called the "Chicken Kiev" speech, where he. In the Ukrainian parliament told the Ukrainians that they should not opt for uh, independence because the Soviet Union had to hang together. In the same fashion now, we have a number of people in the administration uh, uh, who want uh, the Soviet Union, that is now called Russia, to hang together because they are afraid that it will break up. They are afraid of destabilization of uh, Russia, and therefore, they don't want Ukraine to attack uh, uh, Russian bases in uh, Russia that are attacking Ukraine. That is a strict prohibition when it comes to uh, uh, Western weapons. The Ukrainians do attack these bases with their own weapons now uh, with a lot of drones that they are producing uh, themselves. But Washington has prohibited their use of uh, weapons for this uh, purpose. And this is not acceptable. And it means that the Ukrainians are fighting with one arm uh, uh, tied behind uh, their their back. And you can listen to national security advisor Jake Sullivan. He's afraid of... um, Uh, provoking Putin. Uh, He's afraid of uh, uh, provoking a nuclear war. He's afraid of uh, provoking a third world war. But all uh, uh, us uh, who know the the Soviet Union, Russia, uh, well, we uh, say this is not how it works. You have to stand up to uh, uh, Putin. The, The Russian attitude is always to escalate. If you don't escalate, you are weak. And therefore, uh, Moscow perceives Washington as weak. And th- the argument that is increasingly made is that uh, Putin is not pursuing the war against Ukraine. He's pursuing the war against Washington because the Washington is today the weakest spot in the Western alliance.
0: So how can the Ukraine have a successful counter-offensive if they don't have air superiority. And this has been what I've heard from people close to Badanov the head of Ukrainian military intelligence, that for the longest time they already have possession from the Poles and from Slovakia of MiG-29s, which can be upgraded very quickly by the Israelis. And the US is blocking this because they want to give them F-16s, which are going to come from uh, Denmark and the Netherlands, but they won't be trained up on them until the spring. So, what's happening here? Is this some kind of payoff to Lockheed Martin, or I mean, again, it seems to be in the category of the U.S. not really wanting Ukraine to win.
2: Yeah, I would rather emphasize the the, the latter part that uh, Washington is afraid that Russia will collapse, and therefore. They don't want Ukraine to, to to win too clearly. They want Ukraine to survive, yes. But uh, uh, and you can hear Secretary of State uh, Anthony Blinken and his uh, deputy uh, Victoria Newland. They pronounce it clearly that uh, Ukraine has the right and should be encouraged uh, to uh, take back Crimea. Crimea is the central. Issue Because who controls Crimea, and in particular Sevastopol, controls the Black Sea. And Ukraine needs to have control over its uh, Black Sea ports. If Ukraine does not uh, uh, control Crimea, then uh, its uh, Black Sea ports can't uh, be safe.
0: Well, we've certainly seen that. They've been pounded into, you know, they're completely into rubble, haven't they? The, the grain depots and the ports, although Ukraine is now starting to send ships. I mean, uh, the, a while back, uh, the US... Wasn't it Sullivan who stopped US destroyers from entering the Black Sea, which they did routinely? And to that extent, they've ceded the Black Sea to Russia?
2: Indeed. And now, this week, Ukraine did something very clever. And courageous, they sent uh, uh, a container ship, a 30,000-ton container ship, which is owned and flagged from Hong Kong, to from Adyssa, uh, to uh, through the territorial waters of Romania, Bulgaria, and Turkey, all NATO countries and said Russia, you had better not attack uh, uh, this ship because uh, if you do so, then we will sink the uh, uh, n- naval ships that are attacking uh, this uh, container ship. And it went through. It took uh, two days for it to, to reach, uh, reach the Bosphorus, but it did so uh, yesterday. And the question is if warships ships will follow. Of course, it was very clever to send the ship um, with uh, hong kong that is a chinese uh, uh, flag because that would be an additional provocation from the russians if they had uh, attacked it but uh, the question is uh, what will continue the ukrainians are uh, fighting for uh, uh, military superiority in the, uh, the the black sea and the russians have lost so much uh, uh, of a uh, the navy bear and also withdrawn quite a bit uh, of it. So uh, it's quite possible that Ukraine uh, can uh, manage this.
0: Well, obviously, the killing is horrendous. The, the casualties on both sides. And any reasonable person would desperately want this war to end and this destruction to stop. But it seems to me that Putin has made no indications that he's interested in stopping. He wants to go further and Ukraine's had its peace talks in Saudi Arabia recently. They have they have a plan. China seems to be sort of I don't know how much they're embracing it, but at least they're taking it seriously. And I don't understand Sullivan and the, the Biden administration and the I I understand the the hawks on the Republican side because they are just Ignorant and isolationists, but I don't understand uh, the Sullivan's of this world. I mean, why are they falling for Putin's bluff? I mean, what would he, what would be the point of using a tactical nuclear weapon? It would absolutely get him nowhere. Uh, and I think Putin's biggest strategy, which the White House should be aware of, is to have Trump re-elected, and then uh, then the uh, Ukraine would be would immediately be cut off from American uh, weaponry and and support. And Trump would probably pull out of NATO. So isn't that Putin's best play?
2: Indeed. I think that uh, the general discussion here is that uh, Putin uh, uh, will not give up anything in the war until uh, the elections uh, in November uh, 2024, where Putin's big hope is that uh, Trump will come back. And he helped... uh, uh, Trump a lot uh, in uh, the elections in 2016. He was likely to try to help uh, uh, Trump uh, uh, even more this uh, uh, time, time around. So what uh, uh, I agree with you on Jake Sullivan, uh, he should understand that Biden needs Ukraine to win this war against Russia. Uh, Ukraine needs to defeat Russia. Otherwise, Biden will look like a failure in foreign policy. Everybody then will rem, uh, remind themselves of uh, the evacuation from Afghanistan, which was no success, and then spending a, a bit of the money, frankly not much, on uh, Ukraine and not uh, achieving it. Uh, the U.S. should do whatever it can in order to make sure that Ukraine wins this war.
0: Well, but Americans always want to back a winner. And if Ukraine, after there's been this expectation that they'll have this successful counteroffensive and break through the Russian lines and retake Crimea, if they don't, that's going to have, I think, devastating effects on the support for Ukraine because, again, Americans like to back a winner. And, again, I'm absolutely scratching my head as to why Sullivan and company don't want the Ukrainians to win.
2: Indeed. I mean, it uh, makes no sense, but uh, it's the, the argument from 91 that uh, uh, George wielder uh, Brent Scowcroft, and James Baker, Secretary of State, then pushed, we must make sure that Russia has control over the n- nuclear arms. We can't have a splintering of the nuclear arms. Now uh, we have nuclear arms uh, in North Korea and uh, in soon probably in Iran, since nothing is being done about it, and Russia is now cooperating with um, with Iran. So the whole non-proliferation strategy is gone. But even so, uh, the the U.S. administration is stuck in old thinking, don't uh, split the, uh, the nuclear arms, it's better that our friends lose would uh, don't win too much uh, than that uh, you split the nuclear arms. So uh, you, you can say today that the best uh, support for uh, Putin's dictatorship in, uh, in uh, Russia is actually the people in Washington who don't want uh, Ukraine to win.
0: Well, I thank you for joining us here today, Anders Aslan.
2: My pleasure. As all Ian.
0: And again, I've been speaking with Anders Aslan, a Senior Fellow at the Stockholm Free World Forum and a Professor at the Centre for Eurasian, Russian and East European Studies at Georgetown University and a member of the Russian Academy of Sciences who worked as a Swedish diplomat in Moscow and served as an economic advisor to the governments of Russia and Ukraine. And his books include Ukraine, What Went Wrong and How to Fix It and Russia's Crony Capitalism, the path from market economy to kleptocracy. We're going to take a brief station break and back exploring the possibility that the planet is entering the opposite of the ice age, the Pyrocene Age of Fire. Now, Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24/7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Stephen Pine, a professor emeritus at Arizona State University and the author of many books on the history and management of fire, including Fire: A Brief History, Between Two Fires: A Fire History of Contemporary America, and most recently, The Pyrocene: How We Created an Age of Fire and What Happens Next. Welcome to Background Briefing, Stephen Pine.
3: Well, good to be back.
0: Thank you. Well, thanks for joining us, Stephen. And the idea that instead of we didn't experience it, it happened a long time ago, but there was an ice age on this planet. The idea that we could be having or even entering now an age of fire is frightening, but it's also pretty real if you look around you, right? What just happened, the worst wildfire in American history in Maui and now Canada uh, besieged with fires all around, and particularly w- one of its capitals in uh, the northwest territories uh, being evacuated. So, tell us in the context of like the the, the ice age, how you see the pyro scene.
3: Right. Well, um, the concept evolved out of my uh, mulling over uh, the commentaries by many people that the future is not only dire. Uh, but strange, and we have no narrative to connect it uh, to the past, and we have no analog to guide us. And from my background, I thought we had a great narrative. It's the unbroken saga of humanity and fire, uh, accelerating now, but, but continuous. And uh, we have a very apt analogy that when you add up all the ways we're manipulating fire on the planet, we're creating the fire equivalent of an ice age. So major parameters of the ice age, uh, change in climate, ice dominated uh, or informed many landscapes, um, ocean level changes, uh, mass extinctions, great shifts in biogeography. Well, all of these things, you you could take all these things, pass them through a kind of pirate looking glass or uh, less metaphorically, all the ways humans have been manipulating fire, including uh, fossil fuel combustion recently. And what do they look like on the other side? We have the same things happening. Except in this case, fire is the informing feature, and perhaps characteristic feature rather than that.
0: Well, the fires, of course, are caused by global warming, but they also accelerate global warming, do they not? Because... They release vast quantities of carbon stored in trees and soils. It all ends up in the atmosphere, and that's been most of the coverage of the fires in Canada about how the smoke is affecting America as opposed to how it's decimating the forests in Canada. And then you get into this feedback loop where the additional CO2 then contributes to the same long-term warming of the planet that makes the fires themselves more likely. And yeah. an example is in 2020 alone, California's wildfires were estimated to have negated 15, 16 years of the state's cuts in greenhouse gas emissions. This is according to the BBC. Mm-hmm.
3: Well, let me, let me step back uh, for one of your, your opening comments. I wouldn't say that uh, global warming is causing these fires. It's it's pumping more energy into the system. The the boreal forest, the Mediterranean, uh, even Hawaii of the present day are all uh, ready to burn, and what we're doing is accentuating it. Uh, we're we're pumping it full of steroids. So in some ways, uh, this is not an unusual feature in Canada. What's unusual is having it countrywide at this scale and for so long. And clearly. Uh, a, an important contributing factor there is is global change, uh, particularly global warming. So the the question about the, the positive feedback from the burning in what I would like to call living landscapes, like the boreal forest uh, or even the grasslands uh, outside uh, in Maui and so forth, um, these get recycled. Uh, particularly with grasses, uh, you know whatever carbon they release will be recaptured the next year. But uh, with forests uh, and other kinds of uh, other kinds of uh, you know, landscapes, it takes much longer. And it's also the case that with, with climate change and other, other manipulations of you know, uh, of the inhabitable world that, that people are making, it may not come back to what it was previously. It may come back to uh, a state that stores less carbon. So in that case, there is a shift. We could very well be shifting to a, a more frequent fire regime that would be less inclined to promote old growth, sort of large carbon storing um, landscapes. And that, that may very well be the case. But the real villain here is, is the, the fossil fuel combustion, because that is not recaptured. And that is what is compounding it, taking it so far beyond the rhythms uh, of what we're used to that we really are uh, accelerating this. A kind of runaway fire age, really.
0: Well, but when you say, Stephen Pine, that this is not being caused by global warming, we've just had the hottest summer on record in the Northern Hemisphere. And it's, you know, it's going to be heat, heat dumb over the middle of the U.S. in the next few days. And you mentioned the Mediterranean, where there were huge fires in Greece, etc. So, and then of course a couple of years ago, there were massive fires in Australia. So, yeah. the fact that the planet's getting warmer or hotter doesn't that dry things out and make it more flammable, the tinder, the yes,
3: the- that's that's what I'm saying. It's it's acting on existing uh, on existing conditions. And it's magnifying them. It's it's leveraging, amplifying them up. And that is where, at this point, global warming uh, is, is really um, a major contributor to the system. But summers are always hot. Fires always burn uh, have always burned in certain seasons. And what we're seeing is that the seasons are becoming more intense. Uh, they're elongating. But it's not that this was invented out of whole cloth uh, by um, you know, fossil fuel combustion. I mean, I think the you know the Earth has been burning, has accepted fire as long as there has been terrestrial vegetation. We've got fossil charcoal dating back 420 million years. But that give and take was always something that fire, the vegetation, climate, all these things sort of accommodated one another, uh, sometimes more intensely, sometimes less. But when we started so the Earth is used to dealing with that. Um, what's happening now with uh, burning what I think of as lithic landscapes, or once living, now fossilized landscapes, is that uh, there's no place for all the effluent to go. You know, you can burn day and night, winter and summer, winter dry, it doesn't matter. So all of the old ways that Earth and the living landscapes on it had accommodated fire, had sort of Imposed checks and balances, barriers and baffles, uh, to keep it from overwhelming things, are 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 now overwhelmed themselves, and so we're just overloading everything. Uh, so now, not just the atmosphere, but the oceans and the land itself, and things which had been going along with some adjustments and people certainly um, you know tweaking them, and, and in some cases destroying them. But always within certain within certain kind of broad limits. Now we're seeing those limits uh, being broken down, or at best blurred. And so, in that sense, uh, yeah, that is the real that is the real culprit here. And as you pointed out, uh, now that we're that's helping to burn these living landscapes like the boreal forest more intensely, and in some ways more severely, meaning the damages are, are greater. Uh, We're creating, it's helping to create, it's not just recycling the old landscape, it's uh, catalyzing it into what is very likely a new landscape, and most likely a fire-prone one. I mean, we have lots of of legends and myths about the world being destroyed in fire and then being uh, rebirthed from it. Uh, Whether we get, what kind of rebirth we get out of this, I don't know, but in some ways it strikes me that we're seeing a kind of slow motion Um, case of of reality imitating art and in this case that's what we're doing we're birthing through fire in this case our misuse of fire um, a new kind of world so
0: is that to say then that the age of fire we've already entered it and it's simply going to get worse at what point does (laughs) it sort of correct itself
3: well, I don't see it correcting itself unless we intervene. We are the agents here. And if we quit uh, pumping so much stuff into uh, into the atmosphere beyond, I mean, we've got lots of sources, lots of stuff we keep burning, but there are no sinks for it to go. That can be accommodating. It just becomes a, a vast toxin. Um, so it really depends on us uh, how far it's going to go, uh, what the long-term consequences are going to be. Um, My personal sense is that we have been altering the Earth significantly, including its climate, since the end of the last Ice Age. And what you have is a very fast warming, increasingly fire-receptive world being created out of the natural rhythms of the Ice Age and interglacials. And now, however, you have a creature who has the ability to start fire and carry it with him wherever he goes and those two begin interacting. And that has been changing things, um, I think, more significantly than most people recognize. So for me, an Anthropocene or a Pyrocene really begins when those two conditions are met. But clearly, over the last couple of centuries, as we've gone into uh, this sort of uh, uh, breakneck burning of fossil fuels, um w- it's it's just become undeniable. It's not a series of nudges and and um, uh, sort of tweaks to the system. We are, we are completely overwhelming it in ways that uh, really, you know, we've stopped the ice ages,
0: right?
3: which so, is not a bad thing. But we've done it in such a way that we may be worse off.
0: Right. But you've basically made the point that unless we stop burning fossil fuels and do that yesterday... There's no way that we can control what's
3: happening. Yeah, that that's it. We can mitigate, we can do lots of temporary things, and they may be able to work for uh, years or decades or maybe a century or or more, but it will all be overwhelmed eventually unless we stop.
0: And it takes a long time, doesn't it, to get the CO2 out of the atmosphere, even if we went cold turkey and stopped burning coal and gas and oil, which is a yep. heavy lift.
3: Yeah, no, that, you're exactly right. And uh, just as with the ice ages, there's a long lag time for the ice to build up and uh, respond to, to changes. So mm-hmm. a lot of this stuff is already on its way, and we can't stop it. We can mitigate it. But we, our mitigation efforts will ultimately be overwhelmed unless, as soon as possible, we quit dumping all this stuff into the atmosphere.
0: And what is the relationship then to the age of fire and the smoke that all of that is causing? And the opposite effect, which is is called the nuclear winter in the sense that if a whole mm. bunch of nuclear weapons went off around the planet, right. it would create so much debris in the atmosphere that the, the sun couldn't get through, and therefore the Earth would, would cool. Is there any, I mean, it's, It sounds like the worst possible solution to the problem of global warming. (laughs) But uh, is there any balancing out there between, you know, so much smoke in the atmosphere that it may cut the sunlight down?
3: Well, it depends what what the nature of that smoke or aerosols are and where in the atmosphere they are. The higher up they are, the better. And part of the thinking in the nuclear winter was that these fires would be so explosive that they would eject uh, a lot of the soot and ash into the stratosphere, where it can linger uh, for some time. And that would act very much like a a violent volcano uh, ejecting debris into the atmosphere, which which can clearly cool things off for a while. Eventually, it does wash out. Well, there are less violent proposals than uh, starting a a thermonuclear war. forms of geoengineering, and I don't know. They they all have uh, unknown consequences, and we think about one thing happening, but the Earth is a very complicated system, and uh, we don't know what the effects would be. But all of these are only, again, part countermeasures until we stop the source of it, and that that driver is entirely within our hands. This is not nature, uh uh, pumping itself up. This is us doing it. And if we stop doing it, then with a the lag time, things will begin uh, to calm down.
0: So in terms of the our global consciousness, if you will, are we mm-hmm. like the frog in the saucepan? We're not noticing <laughs> it necessarily, but as, as the heat's turned up, we eventually boil to death. Is that the problem? that we sort of know this is happening because you can't avoid it if you turn on the TV. And here we are in Southern California expecting a lot of rain from a hurricane. So the weather is clearly has to be making people aware that something really is awry. So is is that the problem where the frog in the saucepan and we're not ready to make a, a stand, if you will, and just say, okay, this is it, you know, let's stop it? arguing, let's stop debating stupid stuff like whether or not global yeah. warming is real and as a species, act and do so quickly.
3: Well, yeah. And I mean, you're exactly right. And a lot of people smarter than I am and with a lot more experience in um, politics and, and activist campaigns of one kind or another uh, are saying this and saying it uh, very well. But a lot of the problem, one of the interesting things with fire. So, as a fire historian, this, this attracts me is that fire is so vivid a scene that you would think um, it, it it can be mobilized to a, to present in a very graphic uh, and visceral way uh, what some of the consequences are. These are not sort of your grandfather's fires. These these are really Larger, meaner, they're nastier fires, they're more damaging fires than what we've seen. And that is a great uh, that is a great image. The problem is people may see it on TV all the time, but they don't feel the consequences. Most of these are happening, have been happening, sort of in remote areas. Uh, what we're seeing now, however, is that the fires are going to where the people are, and we're seeing fires that now are taking out uh, communities. These are not Called wildland urban interface fires. A stupid name, but these are not fires along the fringe where wildlands and urban areas meet. These are outright urban conflagrations, and uh, they're they're not. Yeah, that and we're seeing that Or Gatlinburg, uh, Tennessee. We're seeing it uh, actually on the island of Rhodes. You see, some people it was like Maui, Mediterranean Maui. So we're we're seeing that, but even that doesn't affect most people particularly in large urban centers what does affect them are these massive smoke balls that are creating totally unhealthy air people are talking i mean to buy filters uh they're talking about safe rooms they're talking about all this other stuff now this we're talking about these really large awful fires mega fires fires that are affecting people with smoke and flame in large urban areas um We're talking about that bringing the issue to them in ways that hadn't been true before. Now it's real. The problem is that this has now become real for people in ways that it was something they saw on screens or they read about or heard about. Oh, isn't that terrible? A town burned over. Now the smoke is there. It is affecting how they live and sometimes for very prolonged periods of time. So now the question of fire perhaps aggravated by global climate change and the smoke that that produces is is hitting people uh, who would not have been influenced in a personal sense, would not have felt it in a personal sense uh, otherwise.
0: Well, Stephen Piner, thank you very much for joining us here today.
3: Well, thanks for the invitation. Have a good one.
0: And again, I've been speaking with Stephen Pine, who's a professor emeritus at Arizona State University and the author of many books on the history and management of fire, including Fire, A Brief History, Between Two Fires, A Fire History of Contemporary America, and most recently, The Pyrocene, How We Created an Age of Fire and What Happens Next.